You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, Earth Station One listeners, and welcome to another episode. We are here this week, and we got a good one for you, folks. You know, folks, we've we've been fascinated with the Titanic for years. There's so much lore and legend about it, and we actually have a true historian and adventurer who will tell us all about you know the fact and fiction of the titanic let's welcome to the show bill willard thank you very much mike and michael thank you for having me it's an honor to be here yes absolutely and we are very excited to talk to you and you know this is gonna be a big adventure for us tonight and mr gordon is here as always happy to see you sir howdy and so we might as well just jump in with both feet. You ready to, sir? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I guess we'll start, Bill, let's start at the beginning. Where where, where did the fascination or the interest of uh, all things Titanic uh, first, uh, first hit you? Like an iceberg. There you go. Mid-1970s, I read a book called A Night to Remember written by Walter Lord. Walter had gone to the survivors that were plenty alive in the 1950s and he got a lot of their eyewitness testimony and he would put them on like index cards and line them up as with parallel events so that he could do a chronology of what was happening on the ship. I'm a visual reader. So if I read about somebody jumping into water and swimming and in my mind's eye, I'm in that picture, I'm in there in that frame. And Jack Thayer said something. He was a 17-year-old. He and a friend were going to jump in the water and try to swim to a lifeboat. Okay, they were not taking up an empty spot as it was being loaded, but they were going to jump in the water and try to make it to one. Uh, His friend disappeared. He did not make it long in the cold water. But Thayer swims out. He's about 50 to 75 yards from the ship, and he turns around. And what he sees is he sees the ship and it's already starting to go underwater. And he says, I could follow the portholes because they still had lights on, even underwater. And you could see people running by the windows through the water. Wow. And in my mind, I could just envision that. And that was in the mid-70s. So I'm looking at 48 years this summer wow. of studying and researching. And, you know, there's so much junk out there on YouTube. There's 20 million videos that had been made by Billy Bob and their cousin. And it's either regurgitation of what somebody else has done or it's bogus things. And we have a whole generation of kids that come along and see all that tripe and they go, this is true when it's not even close to being true. Well, isn't everything on the internet true? I thought, you know, (laughs) know, this is what I thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's where I got started. Okay. All right. Um, and then uh, I know that uh, 
you know, obviously I was, I can't even remember the first time I heard about the Titanic or what form that was in. Um, I mean, there's been so many movies, books written and et cetera, et cetera, about, about the Titanic. But I do know um, the first time it really hit me that it was like a, an actual, like the history of it. And I was like really excited by it was when I, I took a trip to Ireland and I, we went to Belfast and they had a huge, I think it was new. This was like 15, 10, 15 years ago, a pretty new like center that was devoted to uh, the Titanic and how it was built. Cause it was built in Belfast. Um, and they were really like proud of the fact that uh, they had built this massive ship as among many. Um, I've kind of like, there's three, right. There were three of them. Three sisters. Yeah. Three ships. Um, and uh, and I was like, wow, this is this for some reason that really made it feel a lot more real to me than because anything else I'd seen has just been like fiction, like you said, or like, you know, an episode of In Search Of or something like that. So um, and I, of course, you know, James Cameron stuff, fic- fiction and nonfiction is was all over the place. So I I, 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 I see, you know, since it's, it's like the fourth biggest movie of all time third or fourth anyway um it obviously like you said everybody tries to everybody and their brother tries to go out and 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 sort of leech off of it right (laughs) you're right the titanic quarter is beautiful in belfast it really is and it's built on the side of harlan and wolf shipyard and they now have the nomadic there as well was it there when you arrived I don't think Nomadic so. was the last little small tender that would carry passengers out to the ship in the harbor. And it's the only one of the white star tenders that remains and they have acquired it. And it's in the, the graving dock. It's in one of the, the docks next to it. So, so for people out there who are interested in finding out more about the Titanic, do you, would you recommend starting at Belfast? Like, I mean, that's starting, seems to be the start st- with a night to remember. It's a lot cheaper. than yes. going to Belfast. <laughs> That's how I started with it. <laughs> there are four good museums here in America. Um, two of them, let's see, one of them is in Pigeon Forge, another in Branson. They're owned by the same group. They do a good job of telling the historical story, and they have a lot of uh, memorabilia on site. Uh, for example, uh, they come to one of our conferences. We're very good friends with the owners, and they're good people. And uh, Paul Burns is their curator, and Paul's just a wonderful fellow to talk to. He brought over one of their um, artifacts, one of their memorabilia pieces they have. They actually have the life belt that uh, Madeline Astor wore off of the ship. It's been verified. It's been confirmed. So it's uh, an actual piece. And uh, our conference got to take a look at the Astor life belt. There are only about six known to remain, six or so. Um, so that was really nice. The two other ones, one's in Las Vegas at the Luxor and Orlando um, off International Drive has an exhibit and they are owned by RMS Titanic Inc. who has the right to recover the artifacts and the responsibility to take care of them and put them on public display. What you see behind me is the big piece, which my team helped recover in 1998. An attempt was made in 96 when I was out there as an observer. So I've been out to the wreck site twice. And we are going to have a big conference at the Luxor in August. And oh, cool. time for a plug, um, August Absolutely. 9th, 10th, and 11th. 
is going to be the 25th anniversary of the raising of the big piece. Two days, we're going to have family stories where we have passengers, family members that will tell their family member stories. And then we're going to have the expedition teams there and they're going to do presentations and panel discussions mm-hmm. and sign autographs and talk to people. And our third day, we are hoping that we can get some of the cast of Jack and Rose on the love boat. That is what I call the Cameron movie, Jack and Rose on the love boat. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, James Cameron's movie is incredible. It was very well done. Uh, if you take out the Jack and Rose and the Cal Hockley parts of that story, Cameron went to immense detail um, to try to make it as authentic in, in vision in some of the actions that occurred and some of the background things. He wanted to make those as original as possible, as real as possible. And that's what our the historians and other people do. First of all, we went to watch it to enjoy the whole movie. He put a Shakespearean type tragedy in, um, you know, the hero. Everybody knows what happens to Jack by now. And, and, you know, the hero always dies in a Shakespearean story. Um, But he made it for 18 to 24 year olds. And they kept going back to the theaters and they learned about Titanic from Jack and Rose on the love boat. And if that's what got them in, that was the vehicle by which they were able to share the real story. It was pretty wonderful. One of my students came up and she goes, coach, now this is about April, about the fourth month that had been in the theaters. And she goes, how many times have you seen Titanic? And I said, I think six or seven. And she goes, we're going again tonight. It's my 27th time. I just Jeez. love Jack and I always cry because he dies at the end. And I said, yeah, I bet he'll die tonight too. And she says, that's not funny. you know. <laughs> but it's true. It's, it's, it's true. Uh, it, it's actually in theaters now. It's been re-released uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you, people can go watch it in theaters now if they want to, if they haven't seen it yet uh, or if they just want to relive that experience of everybody I mean, everybody knows how it ends anyway. Like, I mean, like, I mean, uh, it's just a matter of who, yeah, who lives and who dies, right? It's it's interesting how how realistic, you know, accurate did Cameron get it? Like the actual sinking, like the boat splitting in half and everything. That is a very solid theory that a lot of people ascribe to, that they support the theory that we know the ship split in half on the bottom of the ocean. The two pieces are a quarter of a mile apart. One's turned the opposite way because it spiraled on its way down. Right. Um, so if you want to get into the technical, which board broke first, that's going to be something they'll never know. But they do know that it split and they both landed on the ground at a little bit different times. Um, mm-hmm. RMST has done an artifact distribution, which is really interesting. They take the artifacts that they've been able to identify and they do a scatter plot. Here are the locations of items that were on a certain floor, certain level of deck of the ship. Sure, sure, sure. And then they do it in a different color. And it's almost like we know these spilled out first because their path is wider. And down here, these spilled out because their circle is more narrow or their, you know, their area of, of landing. And as it gets lower and lower, that concentric path gets closer and closer. And it's really unique that they were able to pull up something like that. Cameron did this. Not a lot of people know it. Titanic struck an iceberg at 1137 PM, 
April 14th. It went down at 2.20 a.m. on the 15th, the next morning. Sure. That's two hours and 43 minutes from the striking of the iceberg to the bow, the stern going beneath the waves. If you start your stopwatch in the movie when it strikes the iceberg, it sinks at two hours and 43 minutes. Wow. So what you see in the Cameron movie as far as the time it took for that movie ship to sink was the actual time that Titanic really sank. And I thought that was an, not a lot of people knew that. And that Mm -hmm. is a piece of cinematic brilliance. That's why he had to cut out several scenes is because he only had to have (laughs) two hours and 43 minutes to put in certain things. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I I remember when you and I first met and we started talking, you were mentioning how about the class system on the boats and everything. And how, you know, the first class, of course, was all the way at the top and then all the way to the, was it third class or was it? The lowest class was steerage, third class. Yeah. And they were, they didn't even barely see daylight because they were so far down. They, they were very deep. They were also around the engines. Right. Because you didn't want your first class passengers to be interrupted by engines making their noise while they turned. Sure. The first class was more in the middle of the ship because that part moves the least when it's, you know, if they encounter rougher water. For sure. Titanic was such an incredible ship. People said that third class on Titanic was better than second class on most other ships. Hmm. That is how luxurious it was. Wow. Wow. So there wasn't yeah. going to be any chance that Jack could have made it up to the first class. <laughs> In reality, he would never have been allowed up. Even had he saved her life, they would have had to, you know, send something to thank him for what he did. They would have never <laughs> have, have allowed him up there. That's just wouldn't have happened. Um, Has the movie, because uh, I want to talk more about, you know, what, your experiences as well, but I just wanted, I was thinking about it when you mentioned the movie and how what an impact it had has, has it inspired a group of, of explorers, oceanographers, um, historians to that take the Titanic seriously, or is it more just a popular, like you said, love boat episode of love boat? A little bit of both. There was a strong interest um, from the research, the recovery team. RMS Titanic Inc. Uh, there were a lot of plans set. When you think about the ship going down, first thing remember is it was about half full. The disaster would have been much worse had they had a full boat and mm-hmm. had it been a, a, a completed. So they were, you know, a large number of passengers short of having a full complement. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody that came on that ship in third class, you're talking about steerage, and that's the that's the part that really intrigued me when I first started doing some serious inquiry is they would carry a bag and in that bag would be everything that they had in their world of value because they were taking it to start all over again in America or in Canada. They were coming to New York for that purpose. They were coming to start all over again and it's still in their cabins. It's still down there in their cabins. Every one of those passengers um, that were on that ship, even the crewmen, their luggage and their things are still in those cabins. Um, and they're waiting. They're just waiting. 
there's a large group of people that says, leave it alone. It's a gravesite. Don't disturb it. It's wrong. I, we were called ghouls and grave robbers for years. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to think this. Do you want all that stuff destroyed? Or do you want it preserved so it can perpetuate and tell this story? Now, George Tullock, who is in charge of RMS Titanic, Inc., um, he worked with the Admiralty Court in Norfolk, Virginia. Now, the process for claiming a shipwreck, if any of us ever get lucky and we find, whoa, there's a ship, we hope it's full of gold or silver, it's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, we have to recover something from it. And we have to do something to prove the identity. If that means taking a video of the name, if it means bringing up the ship's bell, we get the GPS coordinates. We can take a plate, for example. We take it into the Admiralty Court um, and we allow the Admiralty Court to take that, whatever we recover, plate or whatever, and they put it in their vault and they arrest the ship. Really? That means that that court has jurisdiction over all decisions based on that ship. Now, the admiralty courts are in the major countries that are along the border of the Atlantic Ocean. You've got one in Canada. You've got one in the UK. France has one. Spain has one. America has one. All those around, and they all have agreed to honor a specific code of rules. Now, this admiralty court's been in effect since the 1700s because there were so much in naval power in the 1700s. You got the Spanish Armada, you got the British, Lord Nelson, etc. Canada came along a little bit later. The U.S. came along much later. Um, but, you know, just tons of things like that happening. And they all have to honor each other's agreements. Uh, one such agreement is if you find a ship that is declared a ship of war, um, then anything on that ship will belong to the country who from that where that ship came. Hmm. And okay. this happened recently in a, a shipwreck called the Black Swan that was discovered. Uh, it had about $174 million worth of gold and silver, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of silver. And Spain claimed it as theirs because they said that was one of our warships. If you think back, there was a lot of piracy, especially when you were coming around the Carolinas uh, and things like that. And especially, you know, you were coming up um, through Bermuda and, you know, those areas. Caribbean. Uh, sure, sure. Caribbean, thank you. Caribbean. Uh, it's late. <laughs> it's late on a school night. You're Caribbean. That's right. I got it. A lot of piracy. So what do you, where do you put your valuables? You put it on a warship because if a pirate ship comes after you, you blow it out of the water. So uh, this was in court for several months. Spain's claim was the admiralty law that says that is our warship. It was no doubt that it was a warship. It was proven to be a warship. And so Spain got uh, about 80% of that, 70% of that treasure. 30% of it goes as a finder's fee because the team that found it also recovered it. And so that they do get 30%. 30% of $175 million is not a bad little chunk of change. I'll take it. I'll take it. it. Yeah. I mean, I can help us out. It'll 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 you know help us eat at a nice restaurant once or twice. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. So, uh, but that's what the Admiralty Court does. So you would arrest the ship, and then after that, the judge works out the agreement about the ship. Now, most ships, international waters, the finder is the keeper. Okay. You know, finders keepers. They can do whatever they want with it. 
there was a ship they found about 20 miles off the coast of Savannah called the um, uh, Central America. And the Central America had a bunch of reconstruction gold on it, 1866 gold pieces. Now, they were worth $20 in gold in 1866, but the fact that 1866 gold is about a 50th of what it is now, okay, and then the fact that it was shipwrecked gold will boost it up even more. So it was worth millions. Mm. And so Judge J. Calvert Clark was in charge of the Admiralty Court at that time, and Judge Clark had ruled on ships such as the Central America and the Lusitania, which is really closer to England, but they brought it to the American Admiralty Court. I don't know why, but they did. So Judge Clark had a reputation, pardon me, for dealing with famous ships. He and George Tulloch reached an agreement. And the first agreement was that anything that you bring up, you have to preserve, you have to conserve it, you have to make sure that it doesn't crumble for lack of um, being treated properly. And absolutely, we want to take care of the artifacts, he would say. We want to make sure they're treated with the utmost of respect and care to keep them in, in a, a good state so that they'll last for a long time. The second thing the judge didn't want is for the pieces of Titanic to be sold at auction. In other words, if you were either one of you bought a piece off Titanic, it would end up on your mantle. You got some great things behind <laughs> you there at Mike up on your shelf. You'd clear a little spot and you'd put that famous piece of Titanic maybe over there. Uh, you got some cool things on your bookshelf too, Michael. So you'd find a room for your Titanic piece. Nobody'd ever see it again because it's in your house, unless you brought them in and said, let me show you this. And it <laughs> worked really cool. Uh, it, my collection worked great, worked great for my son. Let me show you my dad's Titanic collection. Mm -hmm. Oh, your dad is a Titanic collector. My dad's been to the wreck site twice. And it was like, sure, let's go. And, you know, Way to go, That's Dad. Awesome. I, I got a way to go, Dad, you know, more than once because I would come. Hello, how are you? Sure. Let me tell me. Tell me if I can answer any questions for you. And, you know, and my son's going, yeah, I like this. Um, I'm sure that's pretty <laughs> awesome. So uh, selling the artifacts was a no, no. They could sell the entire collection together with the court's approval. In other words, the court could approve who it was sold to. Um, but you couldn't just sell things individually. The third caveat that was part of the agreement was that things would go on public display for the purpose of entertain, um, education and telling and teaching the Titanic story to current, you know, and future generations. Um, the piece we brought up, the big piece right here in 1998, this thing is going to last for two to 300 years at least. And my great, great grandchildren will be able to go in there and go, that's cool. My great great grandfather helped recover that thing, That's and awesome. uh, you know, though I support the Tulloch platform, that those are three things that you must do with those artifacts. I do not support selling them on the open market. Uh, that would be ghoulish. Yeah, uh, but if you're bringing it up to perpetuate the story, you know, you were talking about Titanic. There are certain movies that you cannot watch on your phone or on your television. And Jurassic Park is another one. Jaws, Close Encounters. You can't watch those on a TV and do them justice. You have to see them on the big screen. Mm -hmm. And because of the success of Titanic, again, um, now they announced today that they're going to start bringing back some of the Star Wars movies back to the big screen. 
And it's been a long time since they've shown the original Star Wars movies on the big screen. So this hopefully will be a trend um, to get people to stop watching them and saying, oh, that's cool. I watched it on television. I don't need to go do anything else. Right. So. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Was and just real quick uh, on on just one more thing about that. Is that in that decision that was made? Is that in perpetuity? Like like if someone else like it's just that applies to anybody or is one group that is responsible for uh, the Titanic and and bringing artifacts up or is it like every time? Right. The one group, Miss Titanic Inc., has the sole salver in possession. That's what status. I was getting at. That's all right. Now, yeah, if they sell everything to another group that's approved by the court, the other the new group has to agree to all abide these conditions those. and abide by these before the judge will approve it. Judge Clark retired and his protege was Rebecca Beach Smith. She took over. Judge Clark passed away. And now Judge Smith is getting ready to where she's ready to retire. And very soon her protege will take over. And it will continue in that court as long as they have the ship arrested, and that court will have that responsibility. All right, so let's get out of let's get out of the courtroom for and for now and go. I want to hear about going to the site. What was that like for you? That must have been that must have been amazing. It's um, very emotional at first uh, when we arrived on site um, in nineteen. One of those things that you can feel, like sort of in the air, like absolutely. Yeah, there was an electricity in the air for some of us that knew what it felt, what it meant to be at that site. We went outside the first night we were there at eleven thirty, and we knew we just didn't even plan on it. We were just all going to do it in, I guess, individually, and we found ourselves on the same part of the ship. And I looked at another historian, Charles Haas, and I said, "You wanted to be up here too to see it," and he said, "Yes." And we had this wonderful image. There's a moon, and you see the white ripples on the waves as it makes a path toward our ship and at 1137 somebody said well it's 1137 it strikes the iceberg ship hits the iceberg and we sat there and um we we talked a little bit we didn't say a whole lot but at 220 somebody said it's 219 and then as it approached 220 you could almost see the bodies, the people in the water calling for help. You almost could hear it. We already had the imagery in our mind from Cameron's movie. Um, we know what the sound may have been like. Frank Goldsmith, little Frankie Goldsmith was nine years old, lived in Detroit. He survived the sinking and he would have to leave town during baseball game days. This is back in the day when the Tigers had uh, Norm Cash and Al Kaline and that Bill Freehand and that group, you know, 60s. And every time they would hit a home run, the fans are going to go crazy. Mm -hmm. And even though he wasn't really right beside the stadium, he was far enough away that the home run sounds, cheers, was stuck in his mind as what he heard from the people that he saw from his lifeboat. And that's a nine-year-old. That's embellished in a nine-year-old's head it's not embellished but in in embossed that's what i'm thinking Mm -hmm. of in his brain is that sound and he would get so distraught and tense he would have to sometimes just leave town to be avoid hearing those noises and so we were out there and we remembered what it was and um we each 
you know, had our own responses. I, I, I teared up. I got emotional. Um, I wasn't the only one. You know, you could see all a lot of those men because we were at the spot. It was holy ground. It was sacred ground to us. Um, I did not dive down in a submersible. My camera system went down. My job being there in 1998 was I invented a uh, robotic camera system. I'm a physics teacher. Mm-hmm. So I could, could, could combine my career with my passion. And um, I made a proposal about, can I make a small ROV? And if it works, you use it. And so we ended up with a three-year plan. The first year was going to, let's get it down there and let's make sure it works. Second year, we're going to come in and go inside and go through all these different rooms. I'd already had a beautiful dive plan, which rooms we needed to go into and what was significant about each room, who was in a room and what they lost and things like that. Albert and Sylvia Caldwell, um, their grandniece, great niece, I think is the official title. She said, Uncle Al um, told the family that he left $100 in gold, $100 gold pieces in his dresser, and he forgot to pick them up on his way out of the cabin. They're still in that room laying on the floor right now. $100 in 1912 gold, which will be worth probably (laughs) a lot. $22,000, $25,000 $22,000, by now. Yep. Yeah. It's still laying there and it's oh, yeah. going to be collapsed in that ship if they don't recover it. So it was very special um, at the site. As, as we left, we also, you know, um, hoped to come back one day. And, uh, but I could feel it. I could feel that there was an energy in the air, mm-hmm. as could others. Some of the people just said, you guys are crazy. You know, it was a ship. It sank. Get over it. <laughs> we just said, you know, go go take a swim, you know, help, help yourself. Sure. Uh, we'll toss you right over. Um, What's going on on the site currently? Are you ever planning on going back? The group that I worked with, RMS Titanic Inc., again, by George Tulloch, was the leader in those years. Uh, he was ousted in a hostile takeover at Thanksgiving of 1999. It was an illegal takeover. Um, the SEC received a letter from someone, it was me, um, and they began to investigate the illegal claims. I had 18 allegations against them and I had evidence to support quite a few of them and at least firsthand testimony from others that, that had to testify. And I was sued twice for a million dollars to shut me up by the bad guy that was in charge who lived in Atlanta, Georgia. Hmm. And uh, the artifacts used to be kept in a location off of Peachtree Street, and it was behind a strip club that's got two helicopters on it. You turn down a road beside it, there's a big nursery across the street, and then that's where the artifacts were. And I found out this location. I went down there and took pictures and everything like that. And one of the things they said was, you don't know where our artifacts are. And I said, oh, yes, I do. Where then, sir? And so I told the address. And then, how did you find this out? And I said, I've gotten great ways. I know mm-hmm. many things. You know, the bad guy was not only a, a, a stole the company illegally, but he treated people horribly. And most bad guys do that. Yeah, when you treat people bad, they're going to want to get back at you. So they go, Willard, take a pencil. I've got some information for you. Don't tell him I told you though. And so I would post it online, some of this secret information. 
And one day I posted something and the bad guy gets up and read it, reads it and starts cursing. And he takes his cell phone, not the cell phone, but the, the big fancy Cisco phone that he has his office oh, phone. Right. And he throws it across the room. And of course it yanks it out of this wall and it bashes into the other wall and it costs him a couple hundred dollars to fix the walls. And he's going up down the halls cussing. How did he find this out? And uh, so I, somebody said, oh, he's so mad. He is so PO'd at you. And this is what he was yelling. And so I put it the next day. I put, how did I find out? He asked, question mark, question mark. I said, who knows? I may have a little listening device somewhere in that office. And as the man upstairs is my witness, he hired a team to come in and debug the entire Titanic office system and would every three months from that day on, just because he thought I may have bugged his office somehow. They would wow. take apart the phones. They would run all their tests. He had a security team check for bugs. I was awesome. in his mind so bad. I loved it. That is awesome. That is awesome. So what's currently going on on the site? Currently at the site, nothing is happening at this moment. To mount an expedition is extremely expensive. Um, there is a plan for a series of dives this summer by a group called Ocean Gate. Ocean Gate has a submersible they call Titan. Now, to stay away from the court, there was a court case, though, that ruled that people could go down and look, but they could not touch or recover. Okay, we know that's not happened. We know some people have gone down and have taken pieces, excuse me, hiccups. They have taken pieces that are missing. And so it's tough to police two and a half miles down on the ocean, 90 miles away from land. Mm-hmm. So uh, Titan should go down on a series of dives. Now, this group has a, 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 a tremendous integrity. I don't mean that they have done anything inappropriate and don't want to even impugn them one little bit. They, they are a, a tremendous in a great group of people to work with say friends of mine who have worked with them so these guys have done it the right way they've gone down taken some fantastic photos and video um if you would like to go and be a mission specialist for them um it's not too bad it's two hundred fifty thousand dollars for your six or seven hour dive (laughs) that alone is worth it right there (laughs) there you go once you win that lottery sign yourself up and if you 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 bring a tourist bring me too i can come along with you if you got that much money (laughs) Exactly. It's it's all in the Powerball, my friend. It's all in the Powerball. It's interesting you mentioned a lot of the locations in the U.S. I've actually gone up to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and gone to the graveyard up there that they had, and then also the museum they have up there, which is pretty amazing. It is. There's one mistake in that museum. Um, At least a lot of historians uh, think so. They have a set of shoes in there that they claim belonged to the unknown child. Right. The unknown child was two years old and those shoes are like age five or six shoes. This kid would have had enormous feet to have worn those shoes. Yeah. Halifax had something happen a few years later dealing with world war one, where a ship in the Harbor exploded Exploded. full Mm -hmm. of munitions, the Halifax explosion. And a lot of us feel that that was a pair of shoes from a victim of the explosion. That makes much more sense. And there is an article in a newspaper called the New York Clipper. And it talks about the unknown child's shoes were given to an American actress. And it's got her name in there. 
and she brought them back to America. And we don't know what happened to them after that. So that's why we question about those shoes. Now you're talking about the Titanic cemeteries in Halifax. There are three of them. There's the Jewish cemetery, Baron de Hirsch. That's the one Usually I you to. have to get permission to open the gates and they'll let you in, but they're, they're very amenable to it. It's not like, no, you can't come in. They're very nice about open. They just keep it closed for protection. The Catholic cemetery is Mount Olivet. And then the city cemetery is Fairview Lawn. Now, one of the projects that I have created, I have designed, and I have enlisted help. It's an international team. Um, we want to go in, and there are 42 bodies that are unknown. Uh, the undertaker slash mortician, as he treated each one of the bodies and prepared them for vi- burial, took extreme uh, notes about each one. Height, approximate weight, scars, tattoos, teeth. Um, whatever he could to give them a physical description of these people. He also put down what items were in their pockets so that it was a possible way of identifying. Now, they recovered about 358, I think, bodies after Titanic sank. The ocean claimed the rest. And of the 358, they brought them all back to Halifax. Some they buried at sea and then brought the remaining ones back to Halifax. The richer families brought theirs to America or to Canada, or put them on a ship and sell them back over to the UK. But the poor people couldn't afford to do that. So Halifax took, um, I guess, uh, custody of those bodies and they buried them. And they gave the names of the ones, but 42 of them right now still do not have a name. They're unknown. And we call our project, Project Name Them All. And if the cemetery allows us, we will go down and we will extract a small amount of DNA, 10 grams. We will do it twice because two DNA labs, one is in Europe and one is in America. America is protected by HIPAA laws. So that makes it very confidential and private. The one in Europe is um, in Scandinavia and they um, specialize in ancient DNA. They can not only tell us a DNA sequence, but they can give us a stronger breakdown as to what area of the world this person came from. So we'll know if it's Ireland or if it's the UK or Serbia or Turkey or France, or, you know, uh, some of those people's physical characteristics are similar. Um, and I'm not meaning anything inappropriate by that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They just No, no, no. We knew exactly what you same. meant. Yeah. Exactly. And so we would be able to pinpoint if this is a Serbian passenger, we have a small list of Serbians. If it is a Turkish passenger, we have a small list of Turks. And we would be able to pinpoint that identification down much better. There's 1,149, I think, bodies that were unidentified. And so of those 243 of those family members uh, have said, we support the project 100%, use my DNA. We've had people offer us money to fund this project. We haven't taken any money. We we don't want to make it appear we're trying to scam people. Uh, we wanted their verbal support. And uh, right now the cemeteries are hesitant because they don't think the public would receive it too well. Whereas everybody that we talk to thinks it needs to be done. I Why think it's, I think it's, a, yeah, I think it's a, a great project. It's a well worth the effort, I think. And uh, you're doing good work, but supporting that. So that's pretty um, amazing. Yeah. Well, um, man, that, that is, that's impressive. 
this and that's, awesome. a, that's quite that's quite an endeavor um, this is awesome stuff um so yeah um but now that we've talked about the titanic and your relationship to the titanic i think mike it's time to find out what else he's passionate about um you know he's it's time for the geek seat questions and uh let's see if uh you know he's he hits a home run or he goes down with the ship oh yeah <laughs> Let's see I if he sinks or not. Yeah. I, I caught what you did there. We're going to see if he sinks or not. <laughs> yeah. It's sink or swim time, right? Exactly. Bill, you ready for your first question in the geek seat, sir? I am ready. All right, Bill. What was your favorite geek out moment? My favorite geek out moment? Yes. Um, probably meeting a lot of the Star Wars characters, Star Trek characters at the same time and just having a, a guy time with all them. We were just comrading that was pretty special that sounded amazing right. yeah you were talking about that before we started recording about uh dragon con right that's where that was dragon con yep that awesome. was pretty geeky oh definitely what was your most disappointing geek out moment though most disappointing geek out moment i have quite a few of those i will get hyped up and prepared for something and it doesn't wash sure um when these cemeteries said no to our project, for example, I'm going, just no, we don't think so. You're not even going to talk to our families and see right. why they want to put their, you know, they want the name on their ancestor. They want to be able to go and worship where he's not worship, honor where he's buried, right? You know, flowers and things. And that was probably a disappointing moment. Um, another, uh, you're going to love this. It's in my book. Uh, we had to go to Toulon for the 98 planning session titanic expedition and they asked me would you be willing to take a train tonight we'll put you up at the novotel right across from the airport so all you gotta do in the morning is walk across the street otherwise we've got to get up at 5 30 drive you to take get your plane and then we drive back and three or four hours later we start driving more people and i said sure i'll do that and due to cows on the track that they could not get off the track in the countryside of France, we arrived an hour and a half late at 1230. And it was one of the old scenes from Get Smart. There's four of us walking through and wham, the gates are closing behind us. And wham, the next set closed. And we walk a little more and wham, the next set closed. And I was even going, dun da <laughs> We get outside. Everybody disperses. There's a cab. I'm going, yes. The airport's about eight miles away. And the cab driver says, do you have cash? And I said, no, I've got traveler's checks. Lots of traveler's checks. Nobody takes traveler's checks anymore. If we do, we could take you to a bank and you could cash one at the bank, but he would not take one. He drives off. So I had to take a piece of paper out of my pocket. I took my trusty pen. All educators have a pen on them at one time. I went over to the bus map and I sketched the roads that I would have to do. And I proceeded at 12.30 a.m. to walk through the town of Nice, France, eight miles to the airport. Wow. I had wow. to. If you remember a few years ago in Nice, there was a truck driver that went bonkers yeah. and ran over some people. The Avenue of the Americas, that was the road that I walked on. That's why it caught my attention. But to make it even more of a wild geek out experience. I'm a good country boy, okay? I, I'm I'm person of faith. I do I enjoy going to church. I was raised uh, very strong with a strong uh, faith. 
and I had to walk through the red light district to get through to the Avenue of the Americas. And this boy's eyes saw stuff he had never seen before and has never seen since. And I learned, I didn't know the words, no merci, au revoir. And, you know, I would take off and (laughs) here comes three more and here comes two more. And, and they were, were trying for a hard sale, you know, Oh, I'm sure you're going to airport. Well, come, come, we take you to the airport in the morning. Oh, I'm sure. No merci, au revoir. Did they take traveler's checks? They probably did. (laughs) I wasn't going to find out. Who knows what kind of souvenirs you could pick up on that avenue. Oh, that's funny. That was one of the weirdest things. Um, Did you ever see Little Shop of Horrors? Of course. Audrey, the, the human Audrey. Yes. Okay. Now, if you picture, I'm on this long, straight sidewalk, and way down at the other end of the sidewalk is a blonde with hair just like Audrey's. Okay. Hot pink tank top, neon green short shorts, white boots up to about her knees. All I could think of is, oh, please, Lord, not not anymore. Let this be the last one. I've, I've, I'm, I'm very strong. I was very, you know, I was, I didn't want anybody to take a knife out if I was rude to them. So thank you. No, you know, no mercy. Au revoir. I was very polite. And as I'm getting down close, she's walking her little miniature something or other dog. And all of a sudden this car pulls up on the sidewalk and cuts me off. And I'm going, yes, the guy in the car wants first dibs. And I was going like, dude, she's yours. All you want. <laughs> and Bill and Ted taught us some things about the French with Napoleon, but everybody in America learned what the word merd meant when Napoleon bowled. Merd, 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 as he'd throw a gutter ball. Yep. And all of a sudden, this guy lets out a string of those and some other things that I didn't know what they meant, and I still don't know what they meant. And his car peels out, and he drives forward, and she's walking away from me again, and I'm going, oh, gosh, one more time. And as soon as I get close, she hears me coming and I've sort of scooted over, but she sort of comes over to where I, you know, to where I was. And when she turned around, she's probably 70 years old. She's got real wrinkles. And when she smiled, she was missing several teeth. Ah, lovely. And I had two thoughts to that. First of all, I thought, bless this poor lady's heart that she feels a need that she has to do this. You know, her children should be there taking care of her. Sure. She should not have to be a streetwalker at that age. And, and and some smokers, they'll get very wrinkled skin. You know, oh, yeah. That's what she was. She had tremendous wrinkled skin. So she had that Audrey. The wig was cute. And the outfit, you know, it was it was classic right out of um, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, so I ended up making it there about 4 o'clock. I was walking pretty quickly through there. I'm sure. And for me to go, you know, about a took me about four hours i guess that's not terrible well, that's amazing that's, cool. that's amazing what kicks you out the most success seeing a a project that i work on or that i have something to do with um succeed such as this big piece uh, i didn't have as much to do with it as some others did but that was our team and i i share some of that pride of being a part of that team. Nice. Um, team efforts are good because you bring the best of the best together. Uh, sometimes it's complicated getting them to work together because they're all used to different working styles. But I think 
seeing accomplishments from great people and I've been able to contribute, I think is, is what answers that question for you. Yeah. No, totally. I understand that. What turns your geek off? Hmm. Not failure. I learn from failure. Um, I'm, I'm motivated by failure. So it's not failure because I'm able to go back and correct a failure. What turns my geek off is when people don't want to hear what you're offering or what. No, thanks. Not interested. Click. Gotcha. Not interested. Click. No, it happens way too often. Mm. Very much so. What fictional character would you like to meet the most? Oh, my goodness. Do you have about a half an hour? Um, <laughs> Not quite. No, but close. Spock. Really? Spock. I'm a big Trek fan. I've, I've Star Trek, Star Wars. Um, I was brought up in the original series. We have a friend here in church. He and his wife were in um, Star Trek Nemesis. And the husband, his name's Andy Keith, was in Star Trek Enterprise for a long time. In the time sequence, Enterprise, of course, is the first of the series. Yep. And he was the first person dressed like a Borg in Enterprise. So that makes him the first Borg. And if you ever get a chance to rewatch that series, uh, he also played a character who was the number two Suleiman. And uh, Silic was uh, was the bad guy, and he was his assistant. And the two of them would do their walk, and they had their prosthetic green makeup on. And he he is so excited telling me what he got to do. That excitement just shares with me. Um, he was telling us a story that uh, they had to takes up takes a couple of hours to put this green makeup on they have to glue it on the insides of their lips because when mm -hmm. they talk those lips have to move as well sure, sure. And it's on their eyelids and then they've got their lit contact lenses and he said he was okay with his but the main uh Suleiman was an actor named james fleck i believe his first name is james great british actor played right. the role to a t couldn't stand his. The first thing he'd do as soon as shooting was done for the day is he'd peel that puppy off, you know. <laughs> and all of a sudden they make an announcement. He said, leave your uh, makeup on. We've got the toy company coming. They're going to make the uh, the, the little mo the, the toys. Yeah. yeah. The little men, you know what I'm talking about? The superheroes, the little mini heroes. The action figures. The action figures. The action figures. That's the word that escaped me. And so James Fleck could not do his own action figure, but Andy still had his makeup on. They said, Andy, you're going to sit in for the, the um, silly picture. And I had to get one off the internet, you know, 12 bucks. It's an action. Oh, figure. sure. Of course. <laughs> just like him in real life. The two of them. Um, Andy Keith looks like the scars guard that played Tarzan. That's what he looks like. He doesn't have the long hair like Tarzan did, but face twin brother could be a twin brother. Awesome. Nice. And, Super nice fella. He, um, they filmed Hunger Games a little ways down from us, and he was a did not play in the Hunger Games, but he was one of the people that helped helped set sets up. They would move things around and sure, clear sure. off things, and so that they could do some filming there. So he was a part of the set crew, and he thought that was really neat too because he would see the sets before the actors even got there, and they would have assistant directors that would come out and take pictures and they'd come back out and say 
can we move this and can we, you know, and that's the kind of stuff they would do based mm-hmm. on the director's vision. Nope. That's so. awesome. That is awesome. What fictional character would you not like to meet? Hmm. If it's fiction. Hmm. That's a tough one. That is a tough one. Another one I would like to meet would have been Horatio Hornblower. That would have been a great one. Mm. Um, one that I would not like to meet probably would be the Marquis de Sade or Torque, um, all the English Spanish Inquisition. Torquemada, thank you. Mm-hmm. I would not like I thought you were going to say Jack met. and Rose. Uh, <laughs> oh, um, bite your tongue, Mikey. <laughs> any of the Aztec people that would um, you know, often offer human sacrifices. I would not like to have met any of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are fair. fictional. Those aren't fictional. Those those are that's that's, that's, fine. Really it, it's fine. that's fine. This is your segment. You could do what you want. Okay. Yeah. Can I sing? That's the awesome <laughs> thing. What is your favorite geek word, phrase, quote, or pose? Let's have a group hug and sing "Kumbaya." And I was so ticked off in the movie 2012 when Oliver Platt's character stole my line and I did not get any recognition for it. I really? was so ticked off. Um, you know, it, it, when I, all the years I taught, somebody would get upset in my class and I would say, well, I guess we just have to have a, need to have a group hug with you and sing Kumbaya. And, you know, very few would stay mad because they're trying not to laugh. They wanted to stay mad. And of course they the, the kids would go, oh, and hold their hands out, and it gets even funnier. So we diffused a lot of bad situations with the group hug and singing Kumbaya. And I had a girl come in one time, and she said, my mama taught me Kumbaya, and she starts singing it in class. So we all got a hoot <laughs> out of that, you know, hearing this girl who had never heard the song before singing Kumbaya. That's my favorite geek outline. I love nice. it. That is awesome. That's one of the best ones we've ever had, I think. <laughs> one of the things that I have done in my teaching career is I do, I've been very bad for doing impressions. I used to do impressions. Rich Little was one of my heroes when I was young. He I could remember. do an impression of anybody. And even now I can do impressions of people in our church and people will stick their head around going, is is he here? Or is she here? I thought I just heard her, you know, I, I do a good job of doing that. And I'll be in class and all of a sudden I'll get into Mr. Scott from Star Trek and we'll start talking about things or I'll do Arnold. It's time to talk about what we're going to do as electricity today. And and it keeps the kids attentive, you know, and then they'll start talking back to me in the same voices. And we have a great time learning while we're geeking out with voices. I and, love it. Uh, Last semester, I had four of them that wanted to do the Forrest Gump. Lieutenant Dan, I brought you some ice cream. And if I heard that one time, I heard it 150 times. And I just thought, as much as y'all say that, y'all might want to bring me an ice cream one of these days. You know, I'll take it from you. But it it bonds with the kids. But, you know, it's that's another great geek thing. I I love it. Yeah. What is your ideal geek occupation? rocket scientist i could see that with you i totally could see that yeah you're not that far off as it is so when i was in um college we were going to go for spring break down to uh cape kennedy Mm -hmm. kennedy space center and we actually got to witness 
the first launch of the space shuttle Challenger. That's oh, the one awesome. Yeah. Later on, is it exploded. And I had a camcorder. I had one of the old, huge, looks yeah. like a studio had it on camcorders. Your, yeah. Yeah. And we had to wire it to the big VCR and plug it into the uh, lighter. They don't have lighters anymore in cars, which is awesome. And so I'm sitting here outside the car and I'm filming this rocket go up, this 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 spaceship. And I had made an appointment to talk to some people while we're down there. We we're a bunch of physics majors. There were six of us. Mm-hmm. All of us were physics majors. One guy actually wasn't, but he was going to claim he was physics. And we told him he had to be able to spell physics to claim he was a physics major. And he said, I'll work on it. So it's a week before we go down there. And the secretary walks into our room and the department head is our instructor. And we're learning electricity and magnetism. And he looks at the note and he goes, Bill, buddy, uh, you just got a phone call from NASA. They would like for you to call them right away. And so here I am. I used to wear a watch and I'd go, Oh, I'm sorry. They were supposed to call in a half hour when class was out. He's going, you know, people at NASA. And I said, let me talk to them first. And he says, here, come on, come on. Let him told the secretary, let him dial on our phone. He let you, we'll pay for the call. So I go down there and the actual purpose for the call was our interview was within so many days of the launch. We either had to have a certain set of security clearance forms or they had to move the interview out a day. So I just said, move it out a day. You know, that's the sure, sure. day early. Mm-hmm. So I go back into class and he's going, Bill, buddy, NASA. And I'm going, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for letting me take the call on your phone, Dr. Reese. That was really special. I appreciate that very much. And I'm starting to go back. He said, Bill, buddy, come on now. Come on. We've been sitting here talking about you and NASA and all these different things. You've got to tell us what's happening. And I said, Doc, if I tell you, I have to shoot you. It's high, high clearance. He's going, <laughs> Bill, I'm your, I'm your friend. We play chess together. Come on. I'm your professor. You, you, you can trust me. And it's driving him up the doggone wall. It is, he is pinballing in that room because I won't tell him why NASA called me. Oh, sure. I eventually did do it, but I worked, milked it to the nines. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Good, I love taking it. a good geek takes advantage of every positive situation. Of course. What geek occupation would you not like to do? Rocket science. Oh, okay. Um, mainly because that is an incredible responsibility. Um, on Mars right now, uh, one of the first Mars projects that we had um, a scientist made a small error, power of 10 error. So it's mm-hmm. off by 10. Instead of one, the number should have been 10, for example. Mm-hmm. That means something when you're landing at three meters per second versus 30 meters per second. At three meters per second, you sit down on Mars, the machine cranks up and it drives around. At 30 meters per second, it crashes and it destroys a $2 billion project. Oof. All because of one calculation mistake. I would hate to be that person. Be that guy. <laughs> to be that guy. You know that. Uh, and of course, he's got to be a geek to be in that position. He's got to be a super geek to be in that position. Oh, of course. And so my favorite um, geek line, another one from a movie, is The Rock, where Nicolas Cage, that's Super geek, thank you. You know, you just just he, he he says that about what he really does. 
Right. About some some geek chemist. That's a super geek chemist. Something like that. I every time I hear that, I go, yes. Yes. Uh, more power um, to the kids who had their calculators with them. That is that's awesome. right. All right, Bill. Are you ready for your final question in the geek seat? I am ready. Okay. This is for all the marbles. So what is your ultimate geek fantasy? My ultimate geek fantasy right now um, would be to either give names to the 42 people that I talked about earlier or to go back to Titanic and we go down and I'm allowed to work with the current company and we recover one of the most incredible pieces that tells an incredible story. Um, and I'm a part of that. That would that would really um, be the penultimate ending of a career. Well, sure. I'm getting older. I'm getting older. We've got some young kids coming along that will have to take up our mantle. They will have to take up what we've done and what we've studied. Um, they will have to take over. And so my job now is to help teach those people all the things that we've learned, all the mistakes that we made, all the the things that we've developed and let them take them one more, one more step. Um, I found in 2017, excuse me, 2018, my mom gave me a present and it's very addictive. This is geek 101. It's called ancestry.com. Oh, sure. You start finding your oh, family yeah. members and you trace your line. And yep. so I traced my Willard line. And one of the places that I found is, first of all, I am a seventh cousin of Jimmy Carter. He and I share uh, six, seven generations back uh, a, a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. And um, I did not know any of this. My family did not know any of this until I found it and traced it and confirmed it. And uh, President Carter has been an incredible example of a good human being. And uh, it's so sad to know that he's in his last days, but. I'm very honored that I've found out that I'm related to him. Another relation that I have is if you know anything about the Salem witch trials, the this is a different side of my family. That was through the land side. Now, this is with the Willard side. Uh, the last person executed in the Salem witch trials was a man named John Willard. Mm-hmm. He was the constable. He was, he was executed because uh, he would not go out and arrest anybody else. He said, I'm not going to do this. This is wrong. You have no evidence. So they said, you're in league with the witches. We sentence you to death. And it was after they uh, executed the constable, that's what he was, that the church stepped in and topped it. Um, John Willard's father was Major Simon Willard. And John had a brother named Benjamin, which is my direct ancestor. Wow. And I'm so ticked off because if John Willard really was a witch, I want some of his powers because I've got about a dozen people right now. I would zap the pee out of, you know, with the <laughs> flick of a finger or whatever. I would nail them. So uh, to, to get back to the original Willard line, there was a survivor on Titanic named Constance Willard. She was first class. None of my Willard family had ever heard any of that. And I traced her family back to a little small village in England. It's in Horsmonden, Kent in England. Well, my family is from Horsmonden, Kent, in England, and I found the common ancestor. That so is I awesome. Found it. I was related to Constance Willard. We're ninth cousins. She died in 19, early 60s, I think 62, and she was interred in Riverside, California. Mm-hmm. She never married, never had any children. They put her in an interred spot. Her brother, 
owned a family plot in Minnesota. So he arranged for her remains, cremation, to be brought to his family burial plot and to be buried in the family plot. Um, She is buried in Minnesota, but her grave is unmarked. Uh, There happens to be two more Titanic survivors across the way, and they are related to the Pillsbury family. You remember the old poppin' fresh day? Sure, sure. That's the Pillsburys, that they were on the ship and survived. Um, So I called the cemetery, and I said, told them who I was. And I said, you have buried a Miss Constance Willard. He said, just a minute. Yes, we do. And she's in plot, whatever, whatever, whatever. Hmm. And I said, according to find a grave, her grave is unmarked. He said, that's correct. He said, there was no family members left to, to come and put something on the grave. And I said, I'm a distant cousin. Can I pay for a marker to go on my cousin's grave? Really? And I said, and I said here's what we would like. Her name, her dates born, died, but she was a survivor of the RMS Titanic sinking. And he goes, you gotta be kidding. Seriously, we do not have that written down here. And I said, she is. She was on the Titanic. She survived. And I said, you have two more. And I told him about the Pillsbury's and he looked up and he said, we don't have them either. And I said, I'll send you an email with the link you can click on. So it'll, it'll confirm that. And I said, I would love to put a small mark in the ground. They're about fifteen, $1,800, yeah. depending on yeah. how fancy you want. You know, they're not very large. No. And he said, we got a problem, though, that technically the owner of the plot could have it removed if he doesn't like it. He said, let us do um, some investigation and do some legal work to see about this. And he called me back in three days. He said, Bill, here's what we found out. The owner of the site was her brother, Paul. I said, Paul is the one who arranged for her to be taken around 1964. He said, that's correct. He died in 68. So by now, the person who owns the site is either his grandson or his great-grandson. And he said, to be honest with you, I doubt any of them have ever been here in the Mm -hmm. past 20 years. He said, if you want to put that on, he said, our, our manager said, let's do it. And if they want to move it, We'll deal with that when it comes. He said, you know, he said, what you're asking for is not something tacky and Mm -hmm. irreverent or anything like that. You're asking for something nice, small, short, and appropriate. And who would be upset at that if they don't have to pay for it? And I said, there you go. So I've already got some friends, a lot of Titanic friends who said, make it like a GoFundMe and they will donate toward the cost of that. So we're going to print up little booklets with donors and this summer after the snows melt, we're going to go up there and dedicate her plot. That is awesome. That is awesome. You're doing well, good work, Bill. Bill, that is awesome. Congratulations, sir. Because we got some great news for you. You've made it through the Geek Seat. Congratulations. Huzzah! You made it with flying colors. Huzzah, huzzah. Mr. Mike Gordon, tell the young man what he's won. You have won a lifetime subscription to the ESO Network, a value easily worth $30.02. <laughs> I cherish it. Thank you so very much. This is awesome. It's I only in station that. funds, though. It's not real. So, yeah. <laughs> Bill, it's it's been amazing talking to you about the Titanic, all your other stories. It's been incredible to have you on the show with us. Where can people go to find out more about what your your projects, uh, your book? Is there one place they can go, or do you have a few websites you want to promote? One place that's easy to find it all is VoyagesExploreTitanic.com. All one word, VoyagesExploreTitanic.com. On there, one of the tabs is for Titanic Conference 2023. 
That's when we celebrate the anniversary of the big piece. And we are in the process with a, a publicist. I think, you know, the publicist that's working with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, are trying to get some of the cast to commit to it. We've already got one that is probably going to be there. We just have to finalize the agreement before I release his name. Uh, he does have a speaking role in the movie. He does survive at the end. Um, and we've got two more that we've already reached out to that are considering and will get back with us with some questions. You also can find how to get the book, our story. It's the expedition story. It talks about Project Name Them All. It talks about everything that's interesting um, about that project. It's such an incredible, incredible story. But gentlemen, thank you. It has been a wonderful evening. I have thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. And we've enjoyed having you on. So uh, thanks a lot. Thank you, Bill. It has been awesome, sir. My pleasure. My honor. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Let's take a quick break and we will be back in a moment to close up the show. Welcome to a Geek Girl's Take. I'm your host, Angela, and this week, this Geek Girl is talking about The Bad Batch Season 2, the two-parter for Episode 7 and 8. The Bad Batch has been a really fun season for Season 2. But Episodes 7 and 8, The Clone Conspiracy and Truth and Consequences, have to be my favorite episodes so far. I've been hit or miss of liking or loving episodes of this show, but this two-parter was on point with what made me love the Clone Wars series so much, that it was such a great story. Clone Force 99 has to head to Coruscant to help Rex and a senator bring to truth what really happened on Kamino. This was such a wonderful political thriller, and it was so well-written. We also see Omega struggling with loss and understanding that people come in and out of our lives, and that not everyone is treated equally, which she sees firsthand with how the clones are being treated after the Clone Wars. Since she has been so sheltered for all of her life, and has really only seen the world since she's been with Clone Force 99. I'm also really interested to see what the Star Wars universe has in store for Omega since so far we've only seen her in the Bad Batch and there is so much that they can do with this character and I really hope they take advantage of her. I really hope the rest of season two stays as strong as this two-part story was since this felt so much like the writing of the Clone Wars and really showed growth in these characters. I like the occasional Monster of the Week style stories, but it has been so hard to see where their journey is really going, but this story really did show that for me. Thanks for listening to A Geek Girl's Take. What will I talk about next week? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. So, Brittany, Martha, <laughs> tell me about your podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> it's like we're in sync, but also kind of a disaster. We are always a disaster. So our podcast is fun if you want to hear two people talk about and complain about stuff that <laughs> they love and also hate. And drink. And drink. And the show is yeah. called? Oh. <laughs> But, but first, first let's, let's talk, talk nerdy. nerdy. And you can find us on the ESO network. Ba-ding. See you next Tuesday. <laughs> So that's going to wrap up another episode of the Air Station One podcast. I want to thank Bill for being here tonight with us. It is an honor, sir. The honor's all mine. It was a great show. Thank you guys for making it so, so awesome. As part of our closing up, we usually have somebody do a shout out or 
you know, a recommendation or promote something, anything you want to shout out or promote? If you've never seen Titanic at the big screen, catch it while you can. It may not be back out again in your lifetime. That's That's true. It is awe-inspiring on the big screen. It's it's just larger than life. And it's 3D and 4K. So you get the best best of both worlds. Well, (laughs) what's Cameron doing it? So, and he's the wonder with technology and uh, and everything. So definitely check it out, folks. And Mr. Mike Gordon, we've made it through another one, my friend. We did. And as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Yeah, since we're talking about massive vessels, uh, I thought it only uh, fitting that... uh, I pay tribute to someone that we lost uh, just recently. Uh, we found out that uh, uh, Leiji Matsumoto uh, passed away, and he was one of the creators, main creative forces behind spaceship, uh, space battleship Yamato, otherwise known as Star Blazers here in this country. Um, I love that show growing up. I still love that show. It, it, it uh, was really important to me, and uh, I, I just can't, thank him and, and everybody associated with that show enough. Um, it was uh, a, an amazing piece of science fiction adventure that uh, I don't, I haven't seen uh, on its level since. And uh, it had a good message as well. And, and a really cool big ship like that. Like, mm-hmm. can you see that? Yes, we can see it. Well, the people, <laughs> people in audio know YouTube listeners. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But, so, uh, so yes, uh, it is a sad day, but uh, he will be long remembered. Not just for Space Battleship Yamato, you did so many other things, both in manga and in anime. Um, but uh, Yamato will always have, and Star Blazers will always have a big place in my heart. That is awesome. That is awesome. It's It was such a unique build, too. And showing up in, you know, as a kid... Seeing something like that in a cartoon was just awe-inspiring. It was one of the first animes that I had seen. So it was pretty cool. Especially in the very first episode where they raised it out of the ground and everything. Yeah, they raised it out of the water, yeah. Yeah, well, that, was, yeah. that was just awesome. That yeah. was so pretty cool. All right, uh, my shout-out real quick. Uh, Judy and I are watching a new TV show on Apple TV that we highly recommend it is called shrinking it is starring jason siegel and harrison ford and it is a load of fun if you ever get a chance to watch it it's about a therapist whose wife passed away and he's just not dealing with it all that well and he has a you know teenage daughter and you know, his life is falling apart around him and he still has to go into the office and try to help fix other people's problems. And it's a lot of fun if you get a chance to watch it. You know, the only thing I knew Jason Siegel um, from was, of course, How I Met Your Mother and then also Sarah Marshall, I think it was. And so it was, he's he's a great, great actor. And Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford. So, you know, it's pretty darn awesome. And it's definitely, uh, it's only 30 minutes each episode. So it's definitely worth checking out. And it's 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 a good thing. It's a really good thing. And, you know, Apple TV's continuing to bring some pretty good stuff onto the air. So pretty awesome. So I think that's going to wrap it up, though, for tonight, folks. 
want to thank everybody for being here and want to thank our sponsor for tonight, which is, of course, Tifosi Optical. Tifosi Optical is a sunglass company where you can actually pick your own lenses, the colors, the prescriptions. If you have, they'll tie it into it. And you know what? They also do gamer glasses, 4K glasses. Um, they also do blue light blocking glasses, sports glasses or goggles and they also have face shields it's pretty cool and as a way of saying thank you to fuzzy optical we'll give you 10 percent off your order if you put in earth station one not too shabby and that that's just not one pair of glasses folks that's your whole order check it out to and as always we love to say thank you to everything but thanks for listening to the earth station one podcast always remember we couldn't do this without you if you want to support and the podcast, please check out our T Public store where we have all kinds of great ESO Network t-shirts and, you know, it's, or as we'd like to say, swag. Also remember, if you want to listen to our show before the rest of the world, why not join the ESO Network Patreon? As for a little as a dollar a month, you can help support us here at Earth Station One. Go to www.patreon.com. We also want to hear from you, so please write us anytime at feedback at earthstation1.com. Remember, you could also find Earth Station One wherever fine podcasts are found. Now, Earth Station One can also be found in video format on YouTube. Please subscribe and tell all your friends about us. On behalf of myself, of course, Mr. Mike Gordon also, and of course, Bill Willard, thank you guys for listening. We will see you here next time on the Earth Station One podcast. Stay safe, hug your loved ones, and just have a great time with life, folks. Peace, and we are done. Boom. You've been listening to the Air Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Air Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. Become a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week. Go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.